change in us is hindered when we put off responsibility, right? We, we oftentimes procrastinate and we often allow procrastination to hinder our spiritual growth and God's work in our hearts and our lives, right? But sometimes uh, we avoid all these necessary difficulties that we should be going through or conversations that we might need to have with somebody or responsibilities that God places before our lives, which would bring us change in a good way. And uh, what we find is that passivity oftentimes is a fear or a lack of faith, um, which has very dire effects on our spiritual growth. And it stands in the way of that which to which God calls us, but also to his glory being revealed through us in our lives and that would, which would really grow us. So turn with me, if you can, to the Pew Bibles and the Pew Bibles before you, page 188. 188, so you know it's back in the Old Testament. And we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 2 through 27. Now, don't be afraid, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, but you kind of kind of have to follow through with me because I'm going to kind of read this piecemeal in a story format. So leave your Bible open, and we're going to kind of jump around through 1 Samuel this morning. But this is the story we begin with of uh, uh, Saul anointed as Israel's king as a young man, right? And in verse 2, it says this, Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost, and Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. And so Saul goes on this three-day trek looking for his donkeys, right? And he can't find them, and uh, he decides to return home because he figures his dad's going to start to worry. But he's got a servant along with him, and the servant says, you know, maybe we can go to this, this nearby town and ask this prophet, and he'll tell us where these donkeys are. So, you know, they, they try this, and they go off for this one last try, one last hurrah to find these donkeys. In the verse 14, they go up to the town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel, you know, this prophet of God, coming towards them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before, before this Samuel came, before Samuel, or Saul came, sorry, the Lord revealed this to Samuel, and this is the Lord speaking to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a, young, uh, you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him a ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. And when, Saul caught sight of Saul, when Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Right? And so when they meet, uh, Samuel tells Saul that his donkeys have returned home. He doesn't have to worry about them anymore. And then he invites him to stay the night. And then in verse 20, uh, second half of it, it says, And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and to your whole family line? Right? And then in chapter 10, verse 1, if you skip over there, he anoints Saul, king, Saul as king by saying, Has not the Lord anointed you over his inheritance? In other words, over Israel. So you, you can imagine being a young shepherd, you know, from the least and the smallest of tribes out looking for your dad's donkeys, right? And, and, and suddenly some prophets proclaim you to be king of Israel. I mean, that's a little whack, right? 
And Saul is described here as more handsome and taller than anyone else. His name is translated as ask for, right? So, and that is reminiscent of the request back in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel where Israel asks God for a king, right? So God was actually, if you remember, God was supposed to be their king. He was supposed to be their leader. And um, they were to be under his guidance and, and direction, they were to be the light of, of, of his glory to the other nations around him and following him well and being obedient to him, inviting those other people groups into that relationship with him, right? But they wanted to be like all the other nations around them and have their own earthly king, right? And Saul, apparently, was that answer. And you wouldn't know this, but the term young man in this passage is also translated from a word which means chosen one. So it's very obvious from this passage that God chose Saul for this role, right? That with the original language suggesting that he wasn't only one of the best of Israel, uh, he was the best, right? So he, he was the guy that looked like a king, and he was chosen and he was anointed by God to be so, right? So for us, this is the good-looking guy in high school, right? The, the, uh, the, the quarterback, right, that has it all together. He's on track to go to college for free because he's not only good-looking and talented, he is strong, he's smart and all that kind of stuff. He's the guy that everybody wants to be, isn't he, right? And he should be extremely confident, not just in his physical gifting, but in his calling by God to step forward to any challenge that he would have to face in being chosen by God to be king of Israel, right? So then we fast forward to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I don't know what page that's on, but you can fast forward there. Verses 1 through 58. Again, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But Saul is already king. He's older now, and he's facing down the Philistines in this battle in the story, the very familiar story of David and Goliath. And uh, verse 3, it says, The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley in between them, right? So then Goliath, this huge hulk of a guy with all this armor on and, you know, his, his weapons and stuff, steps out into this field and he starts to taunt the Israelites. And this is verses eight and nine. He says, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the, the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. And if he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I, if, if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us, Right? So we know the story. The Israelites are all terrified. Nobody's going to go out and face down this guy. And then enters David, right? Um, not much more than a boy uh, whose three older brothers are actually soldiers in the Israelite army. And uh, it says in verse 15 that David was going back and forth. He would go back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. He would bring things to his father, uh, taking news and supplies to them, to his brothers. And for, and then it says in verse 16 that for 40 days, for 40 days, this Philistine, Goliath, came forward every morning and every evening and took his stand out in that field and just kind of, you know, taunted these guys. So 80 times, 80 times, you know, he st stood in this open valley and taunted Israel. And then Jesse, 
who is David's father, instructs him one more time to take supplies and get news from his brothers. And as David is sort of talking with his brothers, uh, Goliath steps out one more time, shouting his usual defiance. And then David hears it, and he asks the men standing there, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And now you know from my sermon last week why he specifically says uncircumcised. If you didn't listen to that sermon last week, go listen to it and then you'll understand these things better. But, um, and he says, so who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God, right? And they tell him, well, the king will give you give, give uh, great wealth to the man who kills him. He, he'll give his, his daughter to him in marriage and he'll exempt his family from taxes. That's verse 25. Uh, forever in Israel, right? Sounds like a good deal to me. And then verse 31, what David said was overheard and reported to Saul and Saul sent for him and David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Right? So this little boy, right? And Saul says, well, you're just a kid, right? You ain't nothing but a thing, right? So to, to which David replies, if you remember, and if you can read there, that he describes how he's fought lions and bears and protecting his father's sheep and things like that. And Goliath is going to fall the same way, not because I'm some great thing, but because he is defying God, right? And Saul says, well, go ahead. Go, the Lord be with you, he says. And he dresses up, him up in all this army, armor, and David says, I can't walk around in this stuff, and he takes it all off, all right? And then verse 40, then, then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in a pouch in his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. And Goliath, you know, looks him up and down and says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> what is this? You know, this is nothing, right? And David replies, and this is the best part of the passage, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Woof, big words, right? This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God of Israel or in Israel. All those gathered will, here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. So we know the rest of the story. David sinks a stone into Goliath's head, drops him to the ground, cuts off his head. The Philistines run, the Israelites give chase, and they win the battle, and it's a great story, right? Chris Bell uh, describes the downfall of King Saul and how it relates to our own struggle with passivity in the story of David and Goliath. And Saul was this large, gifted man, right? He's called by God. To, he's anointed by God to lead Israel, and he, he should exude the confidence that David did in facing down Goliath. He sh it should have been him walking out in the middle of that field uh, against Goliath for battle, but it wasn't, was it? Saul, for 40 days, refused to go out into that valley and fight. He was passive, right? Right? 
despite all that he had. He was passive. And as much as he looked like a king and looked like a leader, he refused to fight the battle with his name on it. It was really his battle to fight. And when we refuse to fight the battles with our names on them, uh, we always end up paying the price for that passivity. So the question I have for you this morning is, what do you procrastinate about, right? What do you put off? What do you avoid? Is it a chore that you've been meaning to do? Is it you know, as simple as some homework that you have to do? Is it a project at work? Is it making an awkward phone call to somebody? Is it a difficult conversation or confrontation that needs to be had, right? Everyone procrastinates. We all do it at some level, right? But we're not usually facing down a giant in the middle of the field with everybody watching us, right? But in life, even the simplest of things become gigantic to us, don't they? And we want to avoid them. Some procrastinate all of the time. They say that 20% of the population are chronic procrastinators, right? And procrastination is derived from a Latin verb, procrastinare, meaning to put off until tomorrow. That's how we know the word. But it is more than just voluntarily, vol voluntary delay, right? Procrastination is also derived from an, another ancient word called acrasia, meaning to do something that is against your better judgment or to do something that's not good for you, right? Meaning it is against our better judgment to not face our battles, to avoid our battles, because our battles do something in us. They, they develop us somehow. Against his better judgment, Saul shied away from this battle, ceding his authority to a little boy, and the, it was the first of many steps to his downfall. See, the choices that we make in the battles that we face determine or develop character in us. They either, we, we either glorify God or we don't glorify God in them. And when we shy away from that which, put, which God puts in front of us, we hinder our spiritual growth and more importantly, we impede the glory that God wants to show through us. Charlotte Lieberman in an article titled, Why Do You Procrastinate? It Has Nothing to Do With Self-Control, says this, Procrastination isn't a unique character flaw or a mysterious curse on your ability to manage time, but it's a way of coping with challenging emotions and negative moods induced by certain tasks, boredom, anxiety, insecurity, frustration, resentment, self-doubt, and beyond. The particular nature of our aversion depends on the given task or situation. It may be due to something inherently unpleasant about the task itself, having to clean a dirty bathroom or organizing a long, sort of boring spreadsheet for your boss. But it might also result from deeper feelings related to the task, such as self-doubt, low self-esteem, anxiety, or insecurity, right? And that is a nice humanistic way of looking at it, and it may all be true, right? But for the Christian, but for the Christian, procrastination in the things that God puts in front of us or before us that we need to go through translates to a lack of faith in an almighty God who wins our battles, right? It's a hindrance to our spiritual growth, and it impedes his glory in our lives, we find ourselves often putting off 
uh, and ignoring the responsibilities that are before us like Saul, right? First Samuel describes Saul, as we've said, as the best of Israel, right? He's anointed as king. He's given a charge to protect the people from their enemies. And he looked like a king, and he had all the characteristics of a king, even God's blessings and promises on his life. But instead of protecting God's people, he ceded that responsibility to a young boy, David, who went out and defeated Goliath by faith, a boy who didn't look anything like a king, but acted like one nonetheless, right? They say that procrastination is about lying to yourself. And psychology's solution is to trick yourself to overcome it. In other words, lie to yourself again. Right? So according to an episode of Wellcast, there are three steps to get around procrastination. Number one, eat an elephant one one bite at a time. You can't eat a whole elephant in one swallow, right? So you got to eat it one bite at a time. In other words, break the task down into bite-sized chunks. That's good advice. Number two, pick off the goblins before you attack the dragon. In other words, when your brain is, your brain is flooded with dopamines when, when you do something that you like, so look at your task, look at your project, and do all the little things that you like first, right? And then number three, ignore the siren song. And I don't know if you know the, the epic poem by... Uh, by uh, Homer, the, the Odyssey. If you remember, Ulysses is trying to get, get back home on his ship and, and he, this involves maneuvering through the strait of water where there's rocky sides, I think, and there's these beautiful creatures called sirens and they start singing, I think. And, and so Ulysses, you know, they, they always draw the ships to the side they, they, and they get shipwrecked and, they die, and the sailors die and all this kind of, kind of stuff. So Ulysses ha- tells himself... Uh, or tells his sailors to tie himself, him, him to the mast so he can't move, right? And then he tells them to plug all their ears. So no matter how much he yells for them to go to the side, to the sirens, you know, they won't listen to him and they can't hear him and they just keep sailing past and problem solved, right? And the lesson is clear that, you know, that clear any distractions, clear any d- temptations from your workspace, you know, you know, so you can stay on task. And, you know, so break, break your tasks or your projects down into bite-sized segments, do fun things first, and clear all distractions. It's all good advice. It's great advice. But I want to go deeper than that. Because for the Christian, this be go- goes beyond self-help, right? It goes way beyond self-help. It goes deeper into the matter of the disobedience of not listening to God translating into sin when we think that we know better than him, right? The Christian response to procrastination isn't tricking yourself. It's not lying to yourself again. Rather, it's an honest evaluation of yourself bringing about confession and faith and courage, not in yourself, but in God's strength. I've sat with people numerous times that face difficult situations. Usually, it's just a simple conversation that they have to, somebody, have, to have with somebody. Maybe quitting a job or you know, a confrontation or whatever. And we all manifest our anxiety differently, don't we? We, we have different ways of, of showing it. I know one person who had to have a difficult conversation with, with somebody else and somebody very close to them and for weeks 
we met and we talked about how that conversation would go and it needed to happen given that they were being abused in the situation and they were, they were anxiety ridden. You know, they were worry and sleepless nights plagued them constantly and, you know, they, they scratched themselves raw and shook in fear when we started talking about it like, oh, I can't do this, I can't do this, right? You know, Constant excuses were made as to why they couldn't, you know, every time they scheduled it with them, they would make an excuse and get out of it. There was no getting around it, though. It had to happen. And their only solution, outside of what I was suggesting, was to sell everything, quit their job, and move to another state and put distance between themselves and this other person. But wherever you go, there you are, right? It's going to happen again. And that was a ridiculous solution to a simple conversation and a very expensive solution, by the way. And after much discussion, right, we talked a lot, role-playing, we prayed, you know, a lot of encouragement, right? They mustered the courage to go and have this conversation. And when they came to tell me the result, what a change. There was no more shaking, there was no more scratching, and they were smiling and laughing. Although it was difficult, they said, it couldn't have gone better. That other person just simply received their message. It was, it, was, it was intense. So weeks of worry, weeks of being stuck in their spiritual life, nothing else occupying their minds at all, suddenly all put into perspective and relaxed. Now they could get on with their life. They, they were more confident. It was a spiritual lesson in trusting God for the process and leaving the results to him. And we saw that prayers were answered and God had moved. It was, a, it was really cool. Saul was a man who looked like, a, like he, he would have integrity, but he didn't. Integrity has been a big word with me lately. Saul was a man who looked like he'd have integrity but didn't. And we are called as Christians to be people of integrity. Not just people who say we have integrity. Not to to be people that say we follow Jesus but have a very different lifestyle on the side. Right? There's a very big difference in that. People of courage. Not in ourselves but in the truth and in God's spirit who goes before us in all the battles that we face. Applying 1 Corinthians 10, 13, one of my favorite verses lately, if you haven't noticed, it's come up in almost every sermon. No temptation has seized you except for what is common to humankind, and God is faithful when you, te- when you are tempted. Beyond, he will not tempt you, let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it or, you, or that you can endure it, depending on the version you read, right? In other words, you can handle it because God says you can. And we go back to Matthew 28, the Great Commission, and Jesus says, I am with you always to the very end of the age, right? Saul's temptation was to avoid, right, looking at the problem and thinking, I can't face this. And he was right, but forgot that God can, right? God can. In contrast, David, this young boy, saw that and acted on it, didn't he? And this was one of the, as I said before, this was one of the small, many steps of Saul's eventual undoing. If we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, the Israelites had told Samuel, 
install for us a king to govern us like all the other nations. So they may have wanted a good leader. They may have wanted an uncorrupt leader, uh, a leader with integrity. However, there were other cultural influences at play here, and the Israelites' intentions weren't completely pure in all this. And we remember, they already had a king in Yahweh instructing his people that they need to be set apart, that they need to be different than all these other nations, right? Making him known to all these other people groups, all these other nations. And God honored their request. Why? Because it's what they wanted. Remember from last week, God's worship is never coerced. He doesn't force it upon us. They wanted to be governed like Canaan, like the Philistines, like all these other nations surrounding them, thinking that it would be easier, that life would be easier if we could get somebody else to go fight our battles for us. Saul's root flaw, his root character flaw, was self-exaltation and self-deception. In other words, thinking too highly of himself clouded his vision of how large God really was. See, fear, when God calls for faith, is actually pride, isn't it? He thinks he knows better than everybody else, including God. God says, this is the right path. Saul, take this path, do this thing. And Saul says, no, I know better than you. Tragically, he wasn't even aware of his sin. And the story shows that he's completely blind to his arrogance, and he believes that he's always in the right. So in 1 Samuel 8, 7 and 9, God told Samuel, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. And remember from last week, that sermon, now you know what that means, them serving these other gods. Verse 9, now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So it's not all Saul's fault. We can see that, right? They ask for this and they get it. God gives it to them. They, they had not really been following God anyway and they would get a king that wouldn't really follow God either and life would prove to be more difficult as a result. Relaying through Samuel in chapter 8, verses 11 through 22, God describes how this earthly king will rule over them. He'll subjugate them. He'll take their land. He'll take their resources. He'll take their money. He'll take their sons. He'll take their daughters. And he will make them all slaves. And then Samuel said in verse 18, listen to this. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king that you have chosen but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go before us and to fight our battles. And then verse 22, the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Kind of a sad story. But God's worship, as we said, is never coerced. They get what they're asking for, a king who they think will go fight their battles, but didn't. He ceded his authority to a young boy who did follow God. Saul was a guy that could be impulsive, 
acting unwisely. More than once, King Saul disobeyed God's instructions and, you know, thinking he knew better than God all the time. God wants us, though, if, 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 if we're really thinking about it, God wants us to be dependent on him because it's best for us. And when we don't, and we rely instead on our own strength and our own wisdom, thinking that we can avoid the battles that he's called us into, we open ourselves up for disaster, don't we? God wants us to go for, to him for like our sense of worth in life. And we sang that earlier, right? Uh, Saul enjoyed great popularity with the people, forgetting that he had been appointed by king or, or to be king by God. And Saul's first allegiance should have been to God, as is ours. And we shouldn't forget, as Saul did, that we are all his servants first and foremost, above anything else. And we could be really unfairly critical of Saul, right? But honestly, oftentimes we have more in common with Saul than we do with David, right? Often running from our battles, hiding from our responsibilities, and avoiding difficult situations that God calls us into. You know, we think we know better than God saying, nope, you know, I, I don't want to do that, I don't want to go there. In, in that, what she's called us to, rather than saying, you know what, you know best, you know what is good for me, and I will face this in obedience to you for the sake of your glory in my life. Like Israel, we want to be like the rest of the world, don't we? Out there, you know, like just doing what we want, not really just living how we want, like we talked about last week, not governed by a God who loves us and knows best for us. We want a king to go fight our battles and make faith safe and easy for us. And faith is never safe and easy. Remember, John Wimber used to always say faith is spelled R-I-S-K. God's ways oftentimes seem too difficult when he calls us to courage in the battle for his glory instead of avoidance. The battle always comes back, though, until we deal with it, doesn't it? And when we don't deal with it, it's to our undoing. Saul had 80 opportunities, but he chose to avoid his battle. Saul's mistakes continue. We won't read it all, but in chapter 13, he's disobedient again, bulldozing ahead without patiently waiting as, as he was told. In chapter 15, he disobeys again, and, you know, but he puts a spin on it, a spiritual spin on it, saying that he's made sacrifices, and then he passes the blame on other people. And in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel responds, he says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in, as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. You can come here every Sunday for the rest of your life, but if you're not obeying the Lord in the rest of your life, what good is that? Sleep in if you're going to do that, right? Saul seems to repent in that moment. But again, if we read between the lines, he's really much more concerned about what other people think of him because in 1 Samuel 15, 30, he says, I have sinned, right? Sounds so repentant, sounds so spiritual. I have sinned. And then he follows that and he says, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. So he's constantly working out of his own strength and avoiding battles and seeking approval from other people and lessons that he never really seems to learn. 
very different from when David sins, if you remember. And then he repents, and he really repents, and he prays in Psalm 51.10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And other translations say, renew a spirit of integrity within me. That's a great prayer to pray all day, isn't it? Saul's eventual jealousy of David blinds him to what God had given him. And when we compare ourselves with others, we become very confused in life. We want what they want or what they have instead of trusting to, uh, in God to fight our own battles, to do our own life. We stray from God trying to get we want what we want on our own in life. And life with God has a direction and a purpose and a fullness about it, life without him becomes meaningless and unnecessarily difficult. God expects total obedience, not partial obedience with excuses, right? Change is hindered when we put off responsibility. We can't allow procrastination to hinder God's glory through our spiritual growth. Instead of avoiding difficulties and conversations and responsibilities that God places before us, we can choose obedience instead. And we know, we know that as we do that, he goes before us. He is always promised to be with, to be with us. God, and we know that from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he doesn't give us anything that we cannot handle, Right? So we find out that passivity is fear and lack of faith, which has dire effects on our spiritual growth. It stands in the way to that which God calls us, that which would glorify him in our lives and which would otherwise grow us. So I simply say, let's choose faith and obedience over fear and procrastination this year. Simple message. Let me pray for us. Father, we are growing people in you, and we know that you are sanctifying us, you are changing us, you are developing us, and we know that there is grace and there is mercy unlimited for our failings and our, and our shortcomings in these areas. But that, that grace and mercy we don't want to abuse. We would much rather, at the end of our life, look back and say, I tried my best to be obedient to you, Lord. We would be much, feel much better if at the end of the day you patted us on the back and said, well done, good and faithful servant. So we ask that you would remind us, because it's really in our heads that we have this battle. Remind us of how close you really are, that you are closer than our own skin, that you have filled us, that you've equipped us, that you are making us face things that you know the outcome in. And that you're never going to destroy us. And you're never going to call us into something that we cannot get through. So Father, make us courageous people. Make us people that even when we feel fear, we don't act on fear, but we rather act on faith. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.